Well, hello there. You are listening to an episode of Den Discussions, in which I, Daniel James Sharp, converse with people I find interesting, and who would answer my email, on subjects that I also find interesting. These conversations are posted semi-regularly on my substack, Daniel's Den, on which, among other things, I also write, and to which, of course, I heartily recommend you subscribe. Anyway, on to today's discussion. Let us begin. Hello, my guest today is Iona Italia. Iona is a very accomplished individual, a writer and editor, and also uh, a dear friend and colleague of mine. We happen to have been born in the same small town in Scotland, but she is much more well-educated and well-traveled than I am. Iona is the author of three books, one on the uh, on literary journalism in the 18th century and two volumes, Our Tango World, on her experiences as a tango aficionado and teacher in Argentina. She's also the editor of a forthcoming volume of essays from Aereo magazine on free speech. Uh, she is the editor of Aereo magazine and the host of its associated podcast, Two for Tea. She is also, and as you can see, the list goes on. She is very accomplished, as I said, uh, the author of The Second Swim on Substack, which features her more personal and descriptive writings. So she, as I said, she's a friend and uh, I find her a very interesting person all around. Uh, she's a, a great uh, exemplar of the cosmopolitan intellectual. So we're just gonna have a freewheeling sort of discussion today about her background and experiences and thoughts and ideas and just a word of forewarning she is currently in Australia uh, and she has told me <laughs> that she's on the balcony in Sydney and uh, that some people might be splashing about in the pool later so <laughs> in the background noise uh, that's uh, that's the explanation so Iona thanks for joining me uh, do you have any more to add to your introduction um, yes, so not only were we born in the same town, we were born in the same hospital, um, not at the same time, <laughs> um, but we were actually, um, we were born in the same hospital, and uh, although in my case, my mother came back to Scotland when she was pregnant in order that I would be born in the UK, um, because both my pe- my father was Indian uh, born, um, and uh, he was living in, we were living in Pakistan at that time. And uh, my mother had been um, living in Pakistan. So there was some concern over whether I would have British citizenship. So I was an an kind of anchor baby for myself. Um, And on my birth certificate address, it actually says 12 Mary Road, Bath Island, Karachi, West Pakistan, because the entire country of Bangladesh needs to get off my lawn. (laughs) <laughs> as I hadn't <laughs> I'm older than the nation of Bangladesh um yeah I don't think I've got anything else to add at the moment so yeah, I, mean, I, I do want to ask you a bit more about some of that background but 
since you are in Australia at the moment, uh, I'd love to hear a bit more about that because on your Substack you've posted a couple of uh, very lovely pieces about uh, about your experiences there so far. And you've only been there about a month and you're staying for- I've been there a month, it's way too yeah. short to stay. Yeah. I'm staying the for three months. Tell yeah. us about the South, the global South, the Antipodes. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, um, I should also clarify that I'm, I'm, I'm living and working here for the three months. It's too long a period to be on holiday. So um, I'm not, uh, and I also don't have a car, so I'm not exploring kind of everywhere. I'm based in Sydney. I'm planning to go to Melbourne definitely for a week to 10 days. And I've done a couple of other trips and I'm going to do a couple of other trips. Um, but I'm not doing a kind of tourist agenda of seeing everywhere as I have quite a lot of work to do. And then I am having fun arranged around work, um, but just in a much more, in a really fascinating place. So I think um, my kind of first impressions um, are, it's, so it feels um, from, from the kind of climate and um, vibe of the place, it feels more like Los Angeles than any other place that I, I have been. Um, it has a kind of that sort of Southern California feel. Um, and it has that feel also because people are very into their surfing and outdoor activities because of the sunshine and because of the kind of squeaky clean uh, prosperousness of a lot of it um, but it is a um, it is a version of Southern California with the NHS basically um, you know it's not America it's got a much better a much more extensive in state infrastructure and welfare state and on the whole <clears throat> on the whole a much better functioning infrastructure and welfare state, at least definitely here in Sydney. And it's also more exotic than um, Southern California. So it's it's more full of kind of carrots and um, and bats and other wildlife, even in the city. And outside the city you're quickly in very wild country. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's like um, um, Southern California with parrots, bats, and kangaroos added, um, and uh, and an NHS, just lovely, <laughs> basically. Yeah, well, I've already said that I'm very jealous of, uh, <laughs> of where you are right now. Um, I mean, uh, right now I'm stuck in Fife in Scotland in the middle of winter. Or not, not mm. quite. But uh, you know, it's uh, uh, I, I could, uh, I can only dream of the the silver beaches and the palm trees and the pools and the sun of Australia at the moment. Well, at least you're not on the American East Coast, where I gather people have been advised not to go outside because it's yes, that's, so that's cold. Clear. There's danger of frostbite. Actually, um, for the funny thing, um, as you know, I'm not particularly bothered by the cold um, mm. I can wear quite thin clothes even just a t-shirt in most 
weathers. Um, but the only place I've actually really been cold is New York when I was there last November. Mm. Uh, you it know, can be just ferocious. I actually felt, I felt the cold much more than I think I ever have in Scotland, which is interesting. Yeah, it is just colder. <clears throat> um, yeah, I think, I mean, to be fair, I think you would be uh, melting here. I don't think this would be good weather for you personally because <laughs> I know you have a low tolerance for heat. Um, and also, you like to wear velvet smoking jackets and things. Every, I think if you wore a velvet smoking jacket, you would just liquefy. I mean, completely liquefy. We would need to clean you up with a mop. Only, only um, on weekends, only on weekends, Iona. Please uh, <laughs> air my dirty laundry. <laughs> oh, um, so let's, uh, um, if this was a movie, we would now flash back. So you're in Australia right now, but you've lived in many countries across the world. <clears throat> um, and you've I have, probably yeah. gone over this well, actually, you have gone over this a hundred times before with a hundred people. Um, but nonetheless, I'm going to ask you about your background, a bit more about your background. Uh, you know, you were born okay. in and, and, you know, you, you've, uh, you have Parsi and Scottish heritage. Um, but um, you've also lived in just about every, every, every continent of the world bar Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I, um, <clears throat> let's see, so I spent my early years in uh, Karachi, in Pakistan, uh, in the Parsi, gated Parsi community there, or um, I, I don't have very clear memories of that time, to be honest, and um, part of uh, the thing that people should understand is because my parents died when I was pretty young, and I wasn't, I, um, I grew up after my parents' deaths in the UK. And I didn't really have contact with any, or I didn't have contact with any Indian or Pakistani relatives on my father's side. I just, um, I kind of didn't, I, I mean, I've, I'm, I'm less, I guess, authentically Parsi than somebody, um, or some people might consider me less authentically Parsi than someone who is, totally steeped in the culture uh for the whole of their the whole of their life um it's really something that was in abeyance and i rediscovered it and reinvigorated it um quite recently when i went to india in 2016 so it was around 2015 that i first became interested and it took me a year to plan and organize and get to go to india because getting a visa was very difficult um but um um yeah so i'm i'm sort of unusual in that way and people who know me old friends who know me from before 2015 um many of them don't know about my parsi background and i always felt that it wasn't it seems like kind of stolen valor to lean on that and i felt as though since i had really all my formative years had been spent in the UK. Um, I um, and in a very kind of standard British setting um, that it was, it, it felt sort of fake 
Um, but I changed my mind about that basically when I had a midlife crisis in 2015. And when I went to India from 2016 to 18, I felt as though it was just like, um, uh, it's very irrational, but there was a kind of before and after in my psyche um, when I went to India. It cured my, or pretty much cured my um, severe depression. It made me feel just um, more fully whole, kind of uh, exploring the Indian side of myself and my background. It was um, um, it was an amazing experience for me. So um, we can talk a bit more about the Parsis later, but I'll just give you a brief history of my life. So then um, after I came from Karachi, um, I was mostly at boarding school. And then in the holidays from boarding school, I mostly lived with my much older sister. She's my half sister, um, the child of my mother's first marriage, 19 years older than me. And um, I stayed mostly with her in holidays. Um, and that was in uh, various places in London, later in Cornwall, later in Scotland. And um, then I went to Cambridge um, and in between I spent, there were a couple of years I spent living in Germany and I had a German boyfriend and then I did my PhD. Um, and after my PhD, I worked for two years as a language assistant um, at the university in Dusseldorf, uh, what possibly the most fun job I've ever had, the most fun and easiest. Um, and then I was an academic for a further nine years and I had um, temporary positions in at Carleton College in the United States um, and then um, at the University of Aberystwyth and at the University of East Anglia and I taught English literature. In 2006, I, my then husband and I took unpaid leave and we went for a year to Buenos Aires and I completely fell in love with dancing tango and I decided not to return. Um, and we, I taught tango and wrote a very popular tango blog, which helped me to get kind of teaching gigs and things basically for, um, for about a decade. And then I went to India for two years and it was when I was, um, moving to India that I started really upping my non-dance related activities again because I knew that I wouldn't be able to earn a living teaching tango in India so I started doing some more freelance writing and editing and translating and it was during the time when I was living in India that I encountered Helen Pluckrose online on Twitter we became friends and she hired me to be the copy editor at ARIO. And then when Helen left ARIO in um, August of, no, May of 2022, um, she handed it over to me and I've been uh, running ARIO kind of 95% um, single-handedly. I have a couple of really lovely volunteers who help with specific things um they're wonderful 
Um, that was, I think it was actually 2021, wasn't it? The, was it 2021? I think Are so, you yeah. sure? It wasn't it during the pandemic year? Yeah, let well, me see. Now it, it wasn't I, 2020. I, I'm sure it was huh. 2021. Okay, let me look. I have a tendency to lose years. Um, so that's that, why I've that always last, last year, last um, yes, it has it only been yeah. one year. Um, no, I'm sure it's 21. You're sure it was 21? Okay, let's have a look. Um, because <laughs> um, that's also yeah. when we did the um, you know, the, the free speech essay series. Oh, yeah, and that was for. That was, uh, that was the start yeah. of the thing. Okay, so no, it's been, it's, it was May 20, was it May 2021 that I took over then? Um, when I took over? Um, oh, yes, it was the free speech fortnight. Yes, okay, so it looks like it was 2021. Um, Okay, that makes, uh, for once, I have actually gained a year instead of losing it. <laughs> because usually when I say something was a couple of years ago, it was 10 years ago. And if I think it was 10 years ago, it was 30 years ago. So um, I tend to, I, I, I realize that tendency of mine, and now I add time to make allowance for it. But yeah, okay, so, so May of 2021, I took over from Helen, and so that's been my job ever since. Um, ooh, we have a dog visitor, so if anybody hears me barking in the background, it's good. Who hears you barking? <laughs> yeah, if there's any barking in the background, it's me. <laughs> um, this dog is just a fiction, just an excuse. <laughs> So um, we'll come back on to, um, to, to Ario in a moment. But uh, I mean, we could spend a long time talking about everything you just said, all of your many experiences um, and changes of occupation. You're a very, well, actually, this, this just popped into my mind. Um, you're a very Rushdian sort of protagonist. Thank you. Wow, what a compliment. You, you are a metamorph. You, 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 you go through, you've gone through so many metamorphoses um, in terms of culture and country and employment. And so. Uh, yeah, that, I've got to say, if I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, you go, you go. I'm just, I'm just, I'm, that literally just popped into my mind at just that moment. Yeah, I think that I'm very, um, Definitely, I have, um, I've lived in um, um, Pakistan, India, the UK, the US, Germany, and Argentina. I think that's it. Um, I have done some long, I have spent some long visits in other places. Um, like uh, I spent six months in Sri Lanka. Um, and I've, you know, there's a number of places where I've had a, a visit that was several months long. So I feel like I have at least a sense of those places as well, um, including Japan and Singapore. Um, and um, yeah, some um, some other places that are not coming to mind instantly. But uh, so I that, feel that I'm... Know, that's when you know you're a true, uh, true <laughs> cosmopolitan. They can't even remember all the places you've been. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I tend to be, I'm not really a traveler in the sense that I, um, I, I never, I've almost never go to a place in order to see the, to briefly see the place, to like tick off the sites. Not that I think that there's anything wrong with that at all. Um, I just tend to either stay at home or I go to the place for months on end and like to pretend that I live there. Um, so I, I enjoy being in other places, but I don't enjoy the process of traveling from A to B. So I just um, maximize the amount of time spent in the place and minimize the amount of time uh, traveling around. It's just uh, you've uh, spent hours on the plane to get somewhere and uh, you, you just can't be hassled with, uh, <laughs> with the return journey. No. I'll, just, I'll just stay. <laughs> yeah, I'll just stay. Yeah. And I always, um, uh, when I travel, it's always to visit people. Um, I mean, I'm always traveling on a kind of a shoestring, um, depending on people's hospitality and, um, yeah. So that, something else I wanted to ask you before we move on from your background. Um, I know you, you had some uh, experience with uh, Jermaine Greer university at cambridge <laughs> um, a little bit so i had a few um classes with jermaine greer when i was taking the um i did a special paper so like a kind of uh, optional course and it was um so i think it was if i'm not remembering wrongly i think it was called gender and writing and its dates were 1879 to 1941, which um, was from the date of the first production of A Doll's House to the death of Virginia Woolf. And I remember, um, uh, I can't remember even what, what class I was taking with Jermaine Greer, but I remember showing up at her office. And when I knocked on the door, she said, penetrate. And she also referred to the dictionary as a cunctionary. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, she's a character. She well, she is. She is now thoroughly cancelled, isn't she? she oh, is. of course. You know, all the best people are. So, um, continuing on from that theme, then um, I don't. I don't know how often you are asked asked about this. Um, part of your career now um but it's always been something that i'm interested in uh so your books as i said you've written you you've wrote two books you've written you've wrote uh you're the english, <laughs> you're the english uh, you, you, you correct me but you've wrote you've written <laughs> two books about tango um and uh, as it happens I, I actually wrote a review of those uh books for arc digital thank you <laughs> uh, very good books and i recommend them and I'll, I'll link to them below but most people i think who know you probably aren't as familiar with your academic book anxious employment literary journalism in the 18th century so uh, i just wanted to bring that up and uh, let you talk about that a little bit um, yeah, if anyone wants to buy it, I think it's a little bit less expensive than academic books usually are, but you know what academic books are like. I think it's like 31 quid or something, um, and it is still in print, surprisingly. And I, um, unlike many academics in my field, 
I really wrote it for, well, I wouldn't say I wrote it for a popular audience. I just, I've never been capable of doing academic style writing. And actually, I've never wanted to do academic style writing. I have worked as an academic editor, um, but I don't, um, I, I used to, you know, when I was a student, I used to think that um, people who wrote in this really convoluted um, academies, hedging every single statement and um, drawing on all kinds of theory um, were just way more intelligent than I was because I just couldn't understand them. And now I've come around to the view that, no, that's just obfuscation and bad writing. But, um, but I've never written like that. I've always written um, for a general audience. And um, uh, I, it was um, an expansion of my PhD, which was about early, um, early journalists. And by that, I mean from the period starting in 1690 um, up to, I ended, I ended at um, 1765. And um, it's in the late 17th, in the late 17th century, early 18th century, that we get the first periodicals, the first newspapers and magazine, later magazines, that in the way that we would understand that today, i.e. they're not pamphlets being published in response to a specific occasion, but they are uh, regular publications. And this was possible because of um, the pre-publication licensing act, which um, uh, which was passed in 1644, I think, um, that act lapsed, was just allowed to um, expire in 1694. And that meant that you could publish things without having them um, without having to send them to a censor and be approved by the censor before they could come out. So that obviously allowed people more freedom to print what they wanted to print. And also it meant that um, up until that time, um, you could only own and operate a printing press with a government license. And basically um, Oxford and Cambridge, um, plus I think the Inns of Court and there were a couple of other printing presses. Those were the only printing presses um, in England. So as soon as this act lapsed, people started printing many, many more books. There'd also been some advanced technological advances in printing that were very important, making that possible. And um, it's if you're already printing off a book, then it's relatively cheap and easy to just print off a magazine or newspaper at the same time. And these were just loose sheets of, of paper, basically. Often the first periodicals were so-called essay periodicals. They were like just an editorial on its own um, because you could just print that on one single sheet of paper. But the difference from a pamphlet was that they came out every week regularly and therefore you had also the opportunity for the editor to put their personal stamp on it. So I focus very strongly on um, how people, how editors presented themselves. And that was quite fun because many of them took 
weird and wonderful pseudonyms and invented um, fictitious backstories for themselves. And also how people talked about the new genre within the periodicals and magazines themselves. And, um, and the people who wrote, who later on they started to have readers' letters and what impact that had. So I was interested in the kind of literary responses to that, to the beginning of that genre. Um, and the original, um, the original PhD uh, was on women who had, who edited or are periodicals, but we know were edited by women or are thought to have been edited by women. Um, actually, there's one that I wrote about, which we've since discovered was edited by man, actually, but um, was thought to have been edited by a woman. And I, there were basically five women within that period who were heavily involved in this new journalism are known to have been heavily involved. And that's the perfect number of chapters for a PhD. So my, um, and then when I wrote the book, I paired each of the women with a male ed, um, editor or writer from the same uh, period and have compared and loosely compared and contrasted them. And it was originally called, the PhD was called, um, Philosophers, knights, errant, coquettes, and old maids. So those are some of the um, some of the um, pseudonyms that people took for themselves. One of the periodicals that I studied for the PhD was written by um, Mary Singleton Spinster, and it was called the Old Maids. Um, and uh, yeah, there's uh, it's it's very witty and clever the way that she. Um, the writer uses this um, this pseudonym to to comment on what this new genre means. It was really in that period of the early 18th century that um, um, that for the first time people complained that too much stuff was being written. People had always complained, obviously, about bad books, mm. but um, it was wasn't until the early 18th century, the beginning of the Enlightenment, people began to complain about there just being too many books and too much stuff to read altogether. Um, and, um, you know, that it would have to be used as toilet paper. Or Samuel Johnson put it more decorously, this is an age of authors, and every man must be content to be his own writer. And it does feel like... Um, <laughs> But now with the advent of Substack, it does feel as though we are uh, going through a very similar period of history. Well, I do recommend uh, anyone uh, who is interested to read Iona's book on uh, on this. Um, but I just wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about that aspect of your career, which as I said, I don't think it's spoken about enough when you're being interviewed, so. Um, thank you. The book is called Anxious Employment, um, and that's a quotation from Samuel Johnson. Um, again, he's my pin-up. He said uh, to, uh, in his first, the first issue of his um, magazine, The Rambler, he says, um, I, today I have commenced the anxious employment of a periodical writer, and unfortunately, <laughs> Be careful how you choose your book titles because that that um, 
phrase anxious employment has become uncomfortably autobiographical for me in the, in, in the intervening years yes i think uh, i think a lot of people could uh, could relate to that <laughs> every substack author and every uh semi or quasi employed writer <laughs> can i relate to dr johnson there uh, so if, if you want, um, you know, so, so, since that was part of your academic career um, and, and you spoke a little bit about how, uh, you know, you were not enamoured of the style of academic writing and uh, you didn't want to engage with that at the time. Uh, and, you know, you've spoken and written about some of the I'm not quite sure how to put it but let's just say the degeneration of academia in recent years um was that part of why you left academia was that was that like consciously part of of, of why you wanted to get out um no not at all so there were a couple of things um one was that I um um, I was not very good at being an academic, so I did really enjoy um, reading and researching, and I loved um, lecturing, as, you, as my sister always says, I don't know, you love the sound of your own voice, um, <laughs> and um, I'm presenting papers at conferences and things like that. I, I enjoyed, and I, and I really loved my colleagues, I enjoyed all those aspects of the job a great deal. Um, but I was, um, I didn't enjoy writing under pressure and especially doing academic writing under pressure. Um, and I was, uh, you know, I was not successful in my career because although I published the book, I didn't publish many articles and I wasn't very good at writing articles and writing them in the way that would get them accepted by academic journals, which is what you need for your academic CV. Mm. Sorry, am I disturbing you being out here, Maya? Am I disturbing no, you? The kids are about to go to a spin. Not, not a problem. Not a problem? No. Hi, Maya. Yeah, fine. Sorry, just... Um... Wait, hi, Maya. <laughs> I'm just saying hi. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, so, um, guest, um, guest, uh, guest, there for you know. Yeah, so I was going to guest host, but not not quite. But <laughs> had an unstable and inglorious academic career because I I didn't publish enough articles, and I also um, um, I I didn't really take to teaching either. I really enjoy teaching. Um, dance which is a um, a practical skill and it's um, adults have come to you because they want to learn and their main kind of wish is to just improve the, the dance so it's very practical uh, but I am I have a um, my personality is more abrasive more kind of pedantic and also more critical I am not a natural uh, cheerleader. Um, 
and I'm not, I didn't in the classroom, I think that I polarized students. So I had, I did have many students who liked me, who liked my style of teaching, but there were enough of them who, who didn't, who felt that I was too strict, too cold. Um, and it's very hard to alter your personality and persona and the kind of skills that make one uh, the kind of attention to detail um, and also a specific kind of attention to detail. I'm not implying there's no attention to detail in teaching, but the specific kind of critical attention to detail that I think I'm more drawn to and better at, that is the sort of opposite of the skill you need for uh, for classroom teaching, especially when you have people who are not already enthused by the material. And rather than talking yourself, you need to encourage them to talk. Um, and I find that very difficult. And when you're not a good teacher, you feel like a bad person. Um, and people will say, you know, we don't like Iona, she's a horrible person, rather than just her persona is not a kind of warm classroom persona. So I found that that was something that was making me very unhappy when I was an academic. Um, so, Dr. Italia, you know, <laughs> I don't want to go to her class anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, th um, I think that's actually quite common. I mean, I've never had that experience, but, um, but you know, in my experience as a student, as an undergraduate, um, you know, it's, classes can be really awkward. Um, you know, the, the professor, the teacher is, is just trying to engage people and nobody wants to, to put their hand up and answer a question or discuss or make a point. Um, and though I was, I was probably one of the more talkative people in that regard, I was still pretty, pretty reluctant to put myself forward. And I think that's uh, that's that's quite a common experience um, in in university teaching environments. So uh, I don't think you should uh, blame yourself for that. I think. Um, um, pretty, yeah, I don't. I don't blame myself. Good. good. But it's very soul destroying when you're in it because then you receive, you know, um, bad evaluations from people, and mm. they're just like. I just don't like this woman. I just don't think she's a very nice person. Stuff like that. You know, I have those kinds of evaluations, or at least from some students, a minority, but enough that it's it's kind of a concern. And it it just was, especially when you're putting, I put a great deal of time and energy into trying to improve my teaching. And it just, people just always didn't respond well to my personality in that situation. Mm -hmm. And... I haven't had that kind of uh, response to my personality in any other situation. And I think there's just a, not everyone is meant to be a teacher and there's just a mismatch there. Yeah, uh, it makes me think of, um, you know, students these days, these young people, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of customers again. Um, yeah. And uh, it, ju it just reminds me of, of, of the kind of uh, 18th century model in Edinburgh, at least, where students paid 
you know, they, you know, students paid to take professors' courses at university. So, you know, they were directly, you know, uh, you know, paying the salary right, to professors. Right. So, of course, the professors had, you know, had that enormous pressure where they had to mm. uh, try and try and, uh, you know, convince people to come and take the classes. Uh, it's mm. not quite like it's not exactly the same today, but it is there. There is a certain um, similarity there in terms of it's almost a business transaction. Yeah, um, I. I agree. And also, it's odd, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm quite extroverted. I have a lot of, um, I've, I've made a, uh, a lot of close friends. Um, I often stay with people. People are super nice to me. But in the classroom, I did not come across well. And I found it really kind of very, very stressful and upsetting. And I was getting, it was, it was uh, getting worse and worse because I was getting really nervous by having to teach and stuff. Um, and so that's uh, that's the main reason that I left. Um, and then this opportunity came up to teach tango in Buenos Aires. And at the time I was married and uh, money was not a worry. Later, unfortunately, we got divorced and um, it became a, became a concern. Um, and, uh, um, but yeah, that, that's why I left. Nothing to do with culture war style topics or academic writing um, per se or anything like that well just be just before I move on um, uh, I, I was recently perusing um, Janet Brown's uh, biography of Darwin and uh, she discusses Darwin's time in Edinburgh and as part of the background uh, she discusses um, as I said you know that that system whereby students signed up to classes and paid and therefore they were responsible for the salaries of the professors mm -hmm. um, but outside the university there were also um extra mural schools uh which were a bit more radical um uh so and but still students had to pay to go and, and learn from these uh unorthodox teachers <laughs> Um, and so there was a lot of competition between, you know, the official uh, university teaching staff and the the uh, the extramural schools. And uh, Janet Brown, you know, recounts um, um, a tale of of one of I can't remember exactly, but one of wow. the one of the professors, uh, you know, attacking <laughs> in Edinburgh, attacking one of the extramural teachers with a cane in the middle of the street because this teacher had been stealing his uh <laughs> his, his students and therefore oh god <laughs> so luckily we don't quite have that today but uh no no so if i can come on uh briefly then to um i mean i think we've we've kind of uh covered it obliquely um but i do i do like to ask people you know what, what what are your what are your principles what are your first principles mm. Mm. so um sorry that's that's a big question <laughs> but... yes it is huh. so i think that there is um there's a duty to the truth uh wherever it wherever it may lead um whether it's politically correct or not um and whether it's kind of convenient to you as a person or not 
and I am uh, very conscious of and very discouraged by the number of incentives that we have to lie about things. Um, and um, I think in, in particular, I don't think, I, I tend to be very frank in many situations, and this often doesn't stand me in good stead, um, but I think that I'm thinking in particular of the way in which um, people are forced to constantly advertise themselves as a product in order to attract employers or um, make themselves look good to employers. And I think that it's been very, very, very stifling to people's honesty. I think that's the major thing. Financial incentives was the major reason why people lie. Um, and so um, I would say that's that's one of the number one things. And uh, the other thing is, I mean, this all sounds very grand. I don't mean to imply that I live by this, but I think the other most important principle is um, best expressed by George Eliot when, in Middlemarch, who says, what do we put on this earth for if not to make things easier for each other? So the other kind of crucial value is your, um, your impact on other people, um, that how you are living and what you are doing is in some way making other people's lives better. It doesn't have to be in any large or grand way, and it doesn't have to be a lot of people. It could be just one person. But it's important that you are doing something that is making other people's lives better. There's that, um, there's that line, um, Horace Mann, I think, until you do something for humanity, you should be ashamed to die. Mm. Well, you know, I, I, I think that I don't think um, it's necessary to do something for humanity. You could, for example, just be a very good stay-at-home wife or something. That's also yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't it's think just I don't think that or some that, other person or persons, you know. Yeah, um, I don't I don't think that necessarily means for all of humanity, but giving yourself or doing something for your fellow humans um, is something that you should do. And if you don't do it, then you should be ashamed. I think I think that's <laughs> the 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 meaning of that of that line. Um, and I think that's basically what you're getting at. Mm. Yeah, that all sounds very corny, I know, in Hallmark Cardi. But um, yeah, I think those are the, the two fundamentals, I would say. Well, some of those principles, you know, they seem uh, kind of, you know, you know, like the, like the Enlightenment, like free speech, um, you know, they seem obvious and easy and unremarkable, but they're they're quite radical innovations on quite a lot of what came before, and they're increasingly uh, challenged right now mm -hmm. um, on various sides. Uh, so I don't think it's at all, you know, they're not at all. 
corny. They are very much uh, principles worth defending, worth fighting for, and in need of defence as well. Mm. Yeah, so I, um, Greg Lukianov calls free speech the eternally radical idea. Mm. Um, and um, I think he's right. So um, I've just got a couple more questions. I know time is is getting away from us, and uh, I know I know it's a you're all uh, what what's the phrase bushy eyed and no bright eyed and bushy bright eyed and bushy tail yeah <laughs> and down there in the antipodes, but here it's uh, at midnight now. Um, yes, I come to you from the future. <laughs> No, no, it shouldn't be the pattern. No, is it Sunday morning for you? Yes. Oh, oh, wow. Sunday morning, that's the future, right? So you're still on. You've, you're only just starting Sunday, yeah. whereas we are almost at the halfway point of Sunday. Oh, my God. No, I thought you were, I thought it was Saturday morning for you guys. But anyway. <laughs> no. <laughs> we're at the cutting um, edge here. Um. Uh, you know, a, a completely legitimate answer to this question is no. Um, okay. <laughs> are, there, are, there, are there any news, you know, is there any news or are there any events in the world today that's caught your eye that you would care to comment on? As I said, no is, no is perfectly valid answer. But if there is anything that you want to pontificate on that's going on right now, uh, that's topical, then please feel free. Um, there are tons of things that I could pontificate on, I think. Um, okay, what one topic of news, <laughs> like, breaking news. Um, it's of breaking news. I haven't, I, to be honest, um, I tend to be rather lax about following breaking news. And um, I'm when, I, when I'm back home in the UK, I'm always a little bit cautious of telling people that I edit a um a political magazine because they will be like well what do you think of the choice of so and so for this cabinet position etc and um i have to confess that i um i follow more commentary on general trends than i do follow actual day-to-day -day events that are happening um and um I think, uh, you know, uh, for me, the most, um, the single most uh, worrying thing on my mind, um, news-wise, uh, is the situation in India, um, or as I prefer to put it, in one-fifth of the world, soon to be one-quarter of the world, um, and um, the increasing consolidation of power by the Hindu nationalists who um, are a fascist movement. And I, I'm, I'm not using that word in the usual kind of way that people use it to mean slightly right of center people with whom I disagree. Um, I use that advisedly, i.e. it's blood and soil nationalism. Um, there's an obsession with kind of ethnic purity. Um, of course, not everybody who's supporting Modi or the BJP does so for these, uh, out of that motivation. Um, some people do so because they think he has better economic policies, etc. But um, it has 
Modi's rise has facilitated the, the rise of fascism in India. I'm not the right person to talk in detail about this, and I highly recommend that you have uh, Zubin Madden on your podcast. Um, but I would say that that is the thing that I feel um, that is not receiving, it's receiving quite a lot of attention, but um, I, I feel it can't receive enough attention. Um, and the pressure from the West will definitely help and it will also uh, help Indian liberals to feel less alone and be more inspired. And I'm a little bit worried to see identity politics on the left rearing its head in India and um, handicapping the opposition to Modi somewhat. So I am seeing some tendencies of people to say, well, these very eloquent um, Indian liberal spokespeople who are against Hindu nationalism, who want a liberal, secular, cosmopolitan um, India, uh, multi-faith India, which is, you know, my my kind of dearest wish at the moment politically. Um, some of those, many of those people are, of course, from the Brahmin caste, in fact, almost all of them are high caste Hindus, because after 2,000 years of casteism, those are the people who are more educated and who are, have the um have the the means and the eloquence to be the spokespeople but i i don't want to see any of those people cancelled we need as broad an alliance as possible and we shouldn't be fighting over who's kind of pure enough to be opposing um opposing modi and his henchmen we should all be opposing him well there's i mean as you said uh, for greg lucian of the eternally radical ideas free speech and uh, that 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 um applies to to so much more um because mm -hmm. you know in response to hindutva and modi and the bgp um it's all too easy to uh to embrace uh an equal and opposite form of identity politics and blood and soil yeah. and all of the rest of it. Yeah. Very but the generally radical um, and now quite unfashionable and seemingly obvious ideas are those the old ideas of of Nehru, of uh, a secular India. Mm, yeah, um, I agree. I mean I think that I um in definitely I wouldn't say that identity politics on the right is a response to identity politics on the left. Of course, they can get into this kind of football match, tennis match. Um, but oh no, no, I think I um, in general, on the, the right wing version is much older, um, and um, I think in the West, much less um, is increasingly irrelevant. Um, I think, but not in India and I would like to see that situation reverse and I'll just um, recommend everybody go and watch um, I'm just uh, just googling for a second to check the exact title um, yes I um, so uh, the BBC documentary India the Modi question has been banned in India um, although I think many people have managed to find ways around the ban but Modi and his henchmen do not want you to watch this documentary so I highly recommend you go and watch it <laughs>
Mm. <laughs> no, when 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 I said just to, just to clarify, when I said um, mm. that um, you know it's all too easy to have identity politics in response, um, I didn't mean left and right necessarily. I just mm. meant in, in mm. the Indian context that it's easy for too easy to say in response to Hindu nationalism, let's have Muslim identity politics. Yeah. Which are, yeah. Not particularly. No, I'm not a fan. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's, it's just a different form of tribalism, um, mm. and, yeah. uh, and yeah. what one might might call the, the the more right wing variety of tribalism. Yeah. Um, yeah. In response to another such uh, variety of the species, and no, it's not helpful at all. Um, the, yeah. the solution is. Nehru. Uh, <laughs> the solution comes from those old ideals. Yeah, and Bedkar in particular, I would say, mm. um, is the important thinker here um, mm. in terms of foundational ideas of the Indian state. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I mean, it was a great, almost, almost, um, despite all of its flaws, and, uh, you know, I'm not valorizing Nehru here. Um, let alone valorising uh, partition um, or the British exit from the subcontinent. But it was an astonishing achievement, almost unthinkable, um, that in 1947 you could just have a nation, a secular democratic nation, uh, which is so huge and so filled with ethnic and religious tensions, and yet despite the horrors of partition, it was still achieved. It still yeah. happened. Um, and that really is a great historical achievement, almost, I, I, th I would think, almost unmatched. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, it's it just casually thrown away by chauvinists um, of the Modi variety. Uh, yeah. India is a massive outlier among democracies in terms of prosperity, um, diversity. It's much more diverse than most democracies um, in terms of history, etc. Um, but I, I really hope um, democracy survives in India. And I hope someday Pakistan <laughs> cottons onto the idea. Um, so. Yeah. India, India needs to remain and Pakistan needs to become a secular democracy. And yeah. then there would also be, you know, there would be no more issue between India and Pakistan if that were the case. Um, yeah. well, and both countries would be if, way uh, better off. You know, if, if, if that had happened in the first place, rather than having this arbitrary partition, one could have had mm. um, the entire subcontinent just... Uh, the same as India, basically, rather than dividing it up between different religions. Um, yeah, at least, at I least agree. India basically retained uh, that ideal, and uh, mm. whereas mm. Pakistan uh, essentially was yeah. a professional state, yeah, and we all suffered for it for a very long time. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. So, so I um, guess we, that's we, my soapbox issue. <laughs> <laughs> well, fair enough. And I think it's important because, um, you know, most people in, in the, the West 
uh, quote unquote, they, they don't pay too much attention to that. Although interestingly, the people who do pay, pay attention to it are the very people you don't want to pay attention to it. You know, the, the, the far right in Europe uh, are quite fond of the Hindu nationalist idea, mm -hmm. uh, simply because they are anti-Muslim. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I think we should all be paying attention to this issue and reasserting the importance of, of secular democracy. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure, I'm sure the fact that we have both said that on this podcast uh, will, will completely revolutionise the situation and change the world for the better. <laughs> well, you know, every little help. No, it does. It does. Um, anyway, just uh, I know uh, uh, before before we finish, and this really is the last question, and it's just something that I wanted to ask you about and and have you discourse on for a uh, you know for a short period. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about literature. Uh, you've already mentioned George Eliot, uh, who I know is is one of your very favourite writers. But um, if you want to talk a little bit about your favourite writers, whether fiction uh, and non-fiction writers, then uh, please please uh, recommend some books to us. Yeah. So actually, I am going to um, just consult my own Substack um, because. At the beginning of the year, I wrote a piece um, called The Consolations of Reading, mm -hmm. and it's a highly idiosyncratic list of 10 uh, books that I think everyone should have read. Well, one of them is a collection of poems, so that's slightly pushing it, but yeah, we'll say 10 books, and um, um, I'll, I'll just tell you what I chose and why. Um, and I, I didn't put them in any particular, in a particular order, but I think uh, the first two really are the two most important for me. The others are not in, uh, are, um, not in specific order. Um, and at number one is George Eliot's Middlemarch, 1871 to 72. It's, I think it's uh, one of the most possibly the most deeply perceptive portrayals of human nature. And um, it's, it's a masterclass in empathy. And it's also, um, it's also really underrated as a work of comic genius. So it, I, it, because it's so, because Eliot is um, so kind of profound, um, I think people have this impression of the book as being quite heavy. But it was originally serialized in installments, so it's it's um, for a magazine readership. So it's written in kind of quite short chapters, um, short little semi-self-contained chapters, and um, it's she has a really delightful sense of the ridiculous. Um, second, the second book is. Um, well, really all of Jane Austen's works, but if I had to choose only one Jane Austen book, I'll go with Pride and Prejudice. And um, I know it's a, not a surprising choice, but I think that although, um, I think what people don't 
realize about Austin is just how stylistically innovative she was. Um, and in particular, in her use of, oh, wait, I'm going to just wait a little noisy. Um, um, especially her use of indirect free speech, where she narrates things from um, the point of view of the characters, but unlike unlike every almost every other author, it's not just a depiction of what's going on in the character's brain. It's actually the character is narrating things for us, and that character is often misguided or silly. So it creates a lot of very very subtle and beautiful effects, um, and you can see that right at the very beginning of the novel. It is a truth universally acknowledge that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. So it's not Austin saying that, but it's um, probably uh, Mrs. Bennett, who is a silly, gossiping, gossipy old woman. Um, so there, there are lots far more subtle examples of that, and some of them are very funny, some very moving. But she is a really unusual um, and innovative writer. And um, yeah, I shouldn't go on at such length about each of these, so I'll never get through it. But um, Henry Fielding, The History of Tom Jones, 1749. That is a, um, I think that uh, it's a very, very uh, funny and uh, adventurous romp adventure story. And it's also just fantastically plotted and the enjoyment of the plot which Samuel Coleridge said was one of the three most perfect plots in existence. The enjoyment of that plot is a large part of the enjoyment of the book. And I think that the ability to construct a, an excellent plot is a really underrated um, literary quality. And it's just the, the most fun example of it that. Um, uh, number four, Jared Manley Hopkins's poems. Um, even though I am, um, I'm not religious at all. And Hopkins was a very devout Catholic, and a lot of his poetry is about his relationship with God. Nevertheless, he is the most wonderfully evocative writer, and um, I find his poetry incredibly um, moving, um, immediate, and vivid. Um, He's just, uh, I think he's my favorite poet, full stop. Um, I recommend Ursula Le Guin's The Left Hand of Darkness, which was written in 1969, same vintage as me. It's a really economical little sci-fi novel that covers a very wide range of topics in this tiny jewel box-like precise structure. And um, yeah, I think that that is, um, the best example of the science fiction genre. And I'm not even a fan of Le Guin's other novels. I just think this particular novel is a masterpiece. Um, everyone should read Salman Rushdie. And I particularly oh, like yeah. his, his work, imaginary, his, I particularly like Salman Rushdie's nonfiction writing, actually. And my favorite is Imaginary Homeland, which is a collection of his essays um, in the 1980s. It was published in 1991, and it's I, they are really insightful and moving. And I like the 
fact that he relate he celebrates things that are impure, mixed, mongrelized, um, difficult to define and pin down that that um, that can't can't be easily categorized. Things, people, and places that are um, a rich kind of melange of influences, and I love that about Rushdie. I um, love, love song to our mongrel selves, he describes, yeah. uh, and one of the things he says in that collection, he, that's how he describes the satanic verses. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Rushdie is one of my, um, one of my heroes. Um, then um, there's four more. <laughs> I'll try and be brief. A. A. Milne's The Red House Mystery, 1922. Um, it has uh, the kind of comedy and just astute little character portrayals that you find in the Winnie the Pooh books, which are also masterpieces, of course, that perfect understanding of character. But it's also just an exquisitely plotted murder mystery. And I love that genre, and this is my favorite example of it. I think it's a fantastic book and um, underappreciated. Um, Rohinton Mysteries novel, A Fine Balance. Which was published in 1995. He's a fellow Parsi, actually, and it's a really it's a panoramic tale of India um, during the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, it is an incredibly heart wrenching book, though. Um, I mean, it's not a. I wouldn't say that it's a pleasant read. Um, it's a deep. It's deep, deep uh, human tragedy. Um, but really extraordinary novel. I and I think probably the best novel to have been written in India by an Indian author in English in the 20th century, and that's a really high accolade. Um, and then fi two final ones. Um, Samuel Johnson's Rambler, which I think we already talked about. He is, um, Johnson has this, a unique um, combination of being a very sharp-witted satirist and yet being extremely compassionate and humane. Um, and finally, I recommend um, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe's novel, Wahlverwandtschaften, which was translated as Elective Affinities, 1809. And um, it's an, uh, I mean, all of Goethe's works are amazing, but it's really a, wonderful exploration of two ways of seeing the world um a romantic way um which is about spontaneity authenticity feeling etc and a kind of philosophical way which is about wittiness intellectual clarity good sense and it's a really um through the medium of the of the novel he explores the, the pluses and minuses of those kinds of ways of seeing the world. And I think it's a, an interesting and valid um, dichotomization of experience. Okay, sorry, that was a really long answer to your question. No, um, I, will, I will, well, I will link to, uh, to that piece below. Um, and, uh, you know, I can't think of anyone else uh, better to take some recommendations, uh, or, uh, you know, for the next book. That I read from you, so thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, just as as you were uh, when you were talking about George Eliot and her comic, her underappreciated 
comic genius. Um, I was reminded of a little essay that I read recently. Um, little, um, it's in uh, this collection of essays by Christopher Hitchens, uh, For the Sake of Argument. It's the very last um, essay in the book. Uh, it's called In Defense of Daniel Deronda. Mm, mm. Um, and uh, in that essay, you know, he, obviously he discusses uh, Elliot's, I think it was our final novel, Daniel Deronda. Um, but in that, he he brings up, uh, you know, Elliot's um, comic abilities, which seem to be seem to have gone so um, unremarked upon, um, you know, in in, in general public literary culture uh, because mm. we, we tend to see Elliot as a very very serious po-faced writer um, um, but actually she, she is very funny and uh, uh, yeah. deserves yeah. recognition well I think um, the same thing kind of happens with Johnson which is we yeah. are not used to a pairing that is real kind of compassionate depth but also a lot of humour um, so this ability to sort of look at and depict human beings with um, a, a really keen sense of their ludicrousness, um, yeah. but still not not losing touch with that empathy and compassion. That's something that Elliot and and um, um, and Johnson have in common, um, and something Jane Austen has in common too. And in Jane Austen's case, it's kind of the other way around that people remember the humor, but they're not as attuned to the depth and compassion that is also there. Um, and, you know, there are writers who I think are extremely funny and also insightful and absolutely 100% worth reading, um, but there there isn't compassion there. That's not their thing. Yes. You know, I'm thinking of Swift, for example, the famous, um, a famous example of this, but there are many, many satirists yeah. like that. And that's okay. I don't think it's necessary that all writers should have these two qualities yeah. in any in equal measure. Um, but it is unfair when they're remembered for one over the other. Uh, it's not unfair, but it's kind of a missed opportunity for readers, I think. Well, yeah. But it, well, okay. But it's unfair on the writer to to classify them under one or the other heading, even though they are equal. I kind of think the writer is dead, <laughs> but true. it's unfair in the reader who <laughs> <laughs> write this out. Okay. Both, both are true, both are true. <laughs> Actually, I think, I mean, and that's another point that Hitchens has made about Rusty, is that he is taken as a very serious sort of writer. Um, uh, but uh, actually, you know, in all of his novels, there's a lot of vulgarity and comedy and humour. Mm, um, mm. And uh, well, I mean that. I mean, the reason that I said that was basically to give an excuse for me to say that I have just recently finished uh, Rushdie's uh, most recent novel, um, Victory City, which is fantastic. And uh, I highly recommend it. Um, it will be published by the time this this uh, conversation goes out. Um, uh, we're uh, recording this for me at least on the fifth of December. 
No, December, February. February, yes. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, and R Rushdie's uh, novel is published on the 9th of February. Mm -hmm. um, so that will be out. But I've I've had the great good fortune to to read um, the novel in advance, and uh, it's wonderful, beautiful. I'm writing a review of it. You'll love it. Uh, so I recommend it very much. And it's also it's got the the again despite despite the the reputation of Rushdie, it's got you know it's 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 very funny at points as well. So he's a great comedic writer, which is mm -hmm. one of his skills that I think goes uh, unrecognised um, mm. too much. Anyway, Iona, final question. Is there anything else you would like to say? Um, I don't think so. Uh, well, I guess um, um, I would say that um, both uh, that um, Ario magazine is entirely dependent on um, patrons, small small scale patrons. So we are entirely funded by readers donating to our Patreon. So if you appreciate what Ario has been doing, um, and if you want to see what we've been doing, go and take a look at our articles, then please consider becoming a, a patron. I think uh, pretty much every other magazine, comparable magazine, has a large endowment or um, a large major outside funder um, or source of funding. Uh, we do not. So I think that we are especially deserving of your support. So if you can, um, if you can give $5 or £5 a month, that all mounts up. Um, please consider doing that. Um, you won't feel it, but for Ario, it could mean the difference between life and death. And um, and spread the word to other people you know as well. So if you support Ario, let other people know and ask them to support it too. And if you want to support my writing personally, then um, you can support me by signing up to my Substack. Even free subscriptions um, help me a lot. Um, because I have a partnership with Substack, so um, even free subscriptions help me. So um, you can do that. And if you would like to help more, then consider taking a paid subscription. There'll be um, there are uh, a few of the essays are paywalled for paid subscribers only, so you'll get to read some extra material, um, and uh, which will hopefully be fun. And yeah, so. Um, uh, don't forget that if you, uh, the things that you may consume and appreciate are dependent on very poor and underpaid people producing them for you. And we really need your small contributions and small regular contributions. Okay, that's, that's it, I think. Yes, well, I completely second that. And, uh, <laughs> Well, thank you so much for talking to me. And, uh, well, I'm going to go to bed now. And uh, <laughs> Iona is going to jump into the pool, I'm sure. Mm, I am, yeah. In sunny am. Australia. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's hot here. Very <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right. Well, thank fun. you. Thank you. And uh, 
Goodbye. Bye-bye.